Hello, this is Jesse Weiler from Adoramus Bulletin. As more and more states are starting to loosen their restrictions on their stay-at-home orders, more and more Catholics are able to go back to Mass. But while we were on lockdown, one organization, the Liturgical Institute, was spending its time educating and catechizing Catholics all over the world and preparing them to return to the liturgy. This week, I sit down with Dr. Dennis McNamara, who has taught four of those courses for the Liturgical Institute Online Certificate Program, to talk about his experience teaching there and about some of the information that is in his course curriculum. So without further ado, an Adoramus interview. Hello, Dennis. How are you doing today? I am well, Jesse. Excellent. People are really enjoying these these online courses, and they're really engaged with the content, and they're really interested in the content, and so it's been doing quite well. Um, we, we just put out the architecture course last month, and we had something like 300 people go and purchase it. So, so that's absolutely excellent. And I want to talk to you today about you know why this subject matter has been so captivating to people, why people are should be interested in architecture and how it can facilitate a number of things. Uh, one being evangelization, two being uh, being able to see uh, have a, a full sensate experience of the foretaste of the, the heavenly liturgy. So, uh, why don't we start with um, this this concept of beauty and why that enhances somebody's experience and calls them in and draws them in closer to God? Sure. Well, when you think about it theologically, beauty is not primarily about personal preference. If you get this definition, it comes from Thomas Aquinas and others. We call a thing beautiful when it reveals its ontological reality. Now, I know you've heard me say this before. Ontology is the study of being. And so God is being itself. He's perfect being. He's not a perfect being. He is being. And anytime he shares being with us, he shares himself. So when we see the most beautiful apple, we're not just saying, I like this color better than that. We're saying, this attribute of God, which is apple, is now being made knowable to me. And it's how, one of the ways, at least, that God communicates himself through matter. And the higher you go on the chart of being, the more beauty you perceive. So a rock has less beauty than a dog, right? Because a rock doesn't have intellect or will or locomotion or, you know, emotions. And you get up to other things, you, you the higher participation in being, we talk about beauty. But the key thing is, beauty is this encounter with God's own revelation of himself. And that delights us because that's what we're made to enjoy. What about people who say that, you know, ornamentation, having so much gold plated things or finer things is just being fussy, that we're just paying attention to the things that don't matter and that we should actually be focusing on, you know, the actual liturgy itself. What would you say to that? Well, the question there is not whether gold is used or not. The question is whether it's used properly or not. So, you know, there, there's something called teleology as well, which is the study of ends. That means the final purpose of something. So uh, a chalice has this end, this goal, to hold the blood of Christ. It makes sense to be either made of gold or covered in gold. Now, the restroom in the lobby of the church maybe doesn't need gold plating. If you did it on your toilet seat, that would be fussy and, and unnecessary. You do it on a chalice. It's actually part of the revelation of how important the Eucharist is. And so remember, beauty is this revelation of the nature or the being of things. It, the gold in that case actually tells you how important it is and increases its beauty where it doesn't do that for the bathroom fixtures, say, because bathroom fixtures don't, don't require that kind of sign value. So what about that in terms of the actual building itself, right? So some churches, a lot of churches are shaped different ways. You have the cruciform, you have Gothic, you have all these different styles. What do those styles say about the liturgy itself 
And where, where are the limits of, you know, going too far away from something that would actually cultivate that relationship? Well, always bring it back to the ontology again. And then my students would tease me for saying ontology all the time, but it really is the question. If you don't know that a person is a person, then you don't know what to do with that person. You don't give them human rights. If you don't know what a church building is, then you don't know what it's supposed to be. And a church building ontologically is an image of the glorified mystical body of Christ. Remember in scripture, the apostles are looking at the temple and Jesus says, I'll tear that temple down and rebuild it in three days. And how can this be? They were speaking of the temple of his body. So his body is the temple. It's the place where God and humanity unite. And it's architecturally rendered in architecture, uh, church architecture, because it shows us the many members that are assembled and they're brought to glory. This church building would have fine materials and images of angels and saints, maybe even the Trinity and all of creation, vines, leaves, flowers. It would have this gem-like, radiant, colorful quality that the book of Revelation says the church, the, the heavenly reality is. So the church building... Sure, it has a practical function. Get people in, get people out, pews, microphones, air conditioning, whatnot. That's kind of the minimum. It's like saying a human being is just a series of biological chemical reactions. Well, yeah, you need those. But then you say, how does a person become a saint? How does the building then become a revelation of heaven and earth and God and humanity brought into right relationship? And that looks like something. It looks like angels, saints, all of creation, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and all of it brought to glory. And so we have ways of showing the glorified world through church architecture. And if we don't do it, we're not revealing it. And therefore, it's less beautiful. One of the uh, classes that you have, one of the specific classes in your architecture course, you talk about architecture, church architecture in the liturgical movement, which, of course, we, you know, we know the liturgical movement is the, the main phrase that encapsulates the liturgical movement is active participation. Mm -hmm. So what was going on, uh, architecturally speaking, what, what were the trends that were trying to move towards more active participation in that time? Well, the liturgical movement's an early 20th century movement, primarily, there's some 19th century background for it. And they're responding to the French Revolution, Enlightenment, the Romanticism of the 19th century, saying that religion is fundamentally an expression of the emotions. And what these people are were asking, the writers and the great thinkers of the liturgical movement, yeah, emotions are fine. But ontologically, they didn't say ontologically, but I will for them. Uh, liturgy is this participation in the self-offering of Christ to the Father. And you as a member of that mystical body, just like a stone is a member of the church building, right? It's a member of the walls. Every Christian, every Catholic in this case, is a member of that body offering itself to the Father as a victim, as Christ did, so that the, we can die to ourselves and rise again glorified like Christ did. And that's entering into the Paschal mystery. And so active participation, although it does include things like singing and standing and proclaiming and, you know, donuts afterward. I mean, to some degree, that's real. The more important participation is the participation in Christ's own self-gift to the Father. And that's why they wanted people to know their dignity as baptized Catholics, that they too could participate in the offering of Christ to the Father and therefore participate in the glorification of Christ at the right hand of the Father and in the resurrection. And that would glorify the world as Catholics were glorified one at a time. So we have this concept of the liturgical, there's this, not concept, we have the liturgical movement starts to really bleed into church architecture, and then we have this council, Vatican II, and then we start to see some of the trends that are happening, you know, uh, modernism, postmodern concepts seeping into church architecture. Can you explain a little bit about why you think that happened and why we see some churches that don't really truly exhibit those qualities? Well, sure. What happened 
in the liturgical movement in the in the good period, you know, right up to Vatican II, was this re-understanding that the church isn't just a place for pious devotional images and to feel uh, emotions of churchliness, but that you should take out anything that's a distraction from this self-gift of the Father and hyper-accentuate or accentuate those things that manifested that. So you would see often Christ the high priest, you might see Christ on the cross dressed in vestments because he's the priest offering himself to the Father and offering us. And people started to get a misconception that corporate participation, that's participation as the body of Christ, was equated with feelings of community. And that's when it started to go down the tube. It started losing it, losing its essential notion. Because they would talk about liturgy is not private. It's not private. It's a corporate act because you're acting as the members of the body properly assembled. Somehow that got confused with if you have feelings of community, if you have feelings of inclusivity, you know, if it's all our welcome, hospitality was the hot word in the 70s, then that was basically all you needed and then liturgy would flourish. But they forgot about the corporate nature of liturgy as a self-gift together with Christ's own self-gift. And Vatican II talks about that. We offer the immaculate victim in liturgy. It never says feelings of hospitality or community in Vatican II itself. Uh, the notion is you don't just sit there on your own and pray, but together with the whole church, you offer yourself as Christ. And if you forget that, then the church building becomes a comfortable living room. And that's what a lot of the documents, unofficial documents of that time would say. The church is the living room of God or the dining room of God. And it, liturgy functions in the climate of hospitality. Um, true enough. But once everybody feels hospitable, then you say, let me lead you to the offering of yourself to God the Father. In in your course, um, you have this really great quote um, that just I think is really captivating. You said, I don't think that bad churches exist because of bad architects. I think bad churches exist because of bad theology. And I think that Ooh, was... Did I say that? Wow. You did say that. I agree with that. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad I didn't just put you on the spot and then you say, well, I don't agree with that anymore. Retract it. Um, so what, why is it so important that we lead with theology first and then let that seep into our skill sets? Well, it's kind of like saying, you know, um, lead with DNA and then let the DNA produce the person, right? Or lead with your soul and let your soul then shape the person. So on, theology is kind of the DNA of a building. The building takes the form based on the theology that you believe. So if you're a Puritan, you're going to make an empty white church that looks like an empty meeting hall. If you're not a Puritan, you might say, okay, the matter is good and we can let the realities of heaven come down into our own time through icons and incense and chant and color and gem-like radiance and gold. And so architecture follows the ideas. A professor of mine in grad school used to say, type precedes design. In other words, the idea of the thing comes before the building being designed. And just like if you meet with an architect and you tell them about your house, the first thing is we're building a house, right? If you don't do that, how can an architect design you a house? And then you say, we want open floor plan and we want this kind of stove. And so see the ideas are first and then the building follows that. And if your ideas are bad, the building will just express those ideas as well. Yeah. I think that's a very important thing. And I think that's across all platforms too, whether you're constructing a church or you know, writing an icon or, you know, doing anything, leading with those, leading with theology and letting uh, your skill set, you know, turn what, what you're thinking into something that is artistic and beautiful. Yeah, um, theology precedes the Eucharist, right? We don't make true. the Eucharist and then say, oh, what is this thing? Uh, the Eucharist is the outgrowth of our understanding of God's knowledge of his, and how he revealed himself to us through Christ. Absolutely. Uh, another section of this course, you talk about 
you know, that period where we were kind of diverting a little bit theologically with our architecture, we start to see these renovations. We start to see coming back into the fold, coming back into these theological concepts that precede the architectural designs. And uh, we're starting to see that a lot in churches where, you know, even you have a church that was renovated and turned to something, you know, strip the paintings, paint everything beige. And now we're starting to see a restoration. Um, tell me a little bit more of those those projects that you're seeing that we're, we're starting to get back to that. Well, I think people are finally, after you know, 25 years or so, getting to the notion that the church building has a theological and sacramental meaning, that it is the audience hall of God, yes, but it's more than that, an image of the mystical body of Christ, and the mystical body includes this larger extended membership of the church. They used to see the church as just the people in the pews and they were having their kind of meal around the table and the priest was sort of the host of the meal. Now they're saying, okay, yeah, the priest is the sacrament of Christ. He's the host of the eternal banquet. The eternal banquet involves the angels and saints and all of creation. And so there's a huge revival now in great murals and the, what do you call the front wall of a church or the back wall of a church, the wall behind the altar. And you see images of Christ in glory and the angels and saints around them. That's, that's a big move right now. And I think it's really good because it's understanding the liturgy in its broader sense, not just the human beings having an earthly meeting, but human beings entering behind the veil of the temple, Holy of Holies and participating in those heavenly realities. And that then conforms us to know what we're doing when we celebrate the liturgy and helps us to participate more fully. It's what they call the Ars Celebrandi. Those things help us celebrate more fully because of the art of celebrating being presented to us. One of the frequent documents that you quote throughout your course is the rite of dedication of a church. Mm -hmm. Um, Everything that you quoted from there, all the language is so rich with all of this imagery there. You talk to me a little bit about, um, explain a little bit how that should inform some of these architectural decisions going forward. Well, sure. Using the rites, you know, that are the actual books the church gives to, um, you know, celebrate mass or in this case, dedicated church. The prayers themselves are the theology that tell us what the building is. So there's a wonderful introduction to um, part of it. I think it's the laying of a cornerstone that says the church signifies the people of God assembled. There's all this language of temple and assembling of living stones, all this biblical language, some from Paul. And Paul compares the Christian community to a temple. You're living stones in the temple of God. Different people are laying foundations and other people will build on it. So the texts of the church tell us the theology of what we're doing. And so therefore we can go to them and say, if I want to know what a church is, let me see what this rite actually uh, tells us. Yeah. And, and the last thing I want to talk about is this is this is a conversation that we've had, you know, kind of offline. But frequently you talk about how some of these designs with whether it be an altar or different architectural elements can sometimes cost more than if you were to move in a more traditional or classical direction. That would, you know, not only would it mean more because you're making an altar that is Christ and it's not just a, a you know, a rectangle slab or sometimes different broken pieces. Um, what? Uh, tell me a little bit how, how about how you can make these little adjustments to your church and it doesn't have to break the bank. Sure. If you're building a new church, you can spend a lot of money and hire some star architect or star architect, as they're called. And they'll design some avant-garde thing for you in seven different directions of steel. And it'll cost a fortune. And it'll be an empty, kind of complicated, but empty church inside. Or you can spend the money, just you know, proportionately spread the money around internally in the budget to make sure that your altar wins the day. It's the most 
elaborate thing in the room so that you can say, all right, well, if my altar is so beautiful, then I don't need to have lots of stuff on the wall behind me or pay for complicated roof lines. Or if you have a church that you want to renovate, maybe you can't rebuild the whole thing, but think about the wall behind the altar in the sanctuary and say, what's there? You know, is it just a crucifix and a Joseph and Mary? Nothing wrong with that, but boy, wouldn't it be better to say, let's incorporate Joseph and Mary and the crucified Christ into the a great mural of the cosmic uh, uh, created order as it's brought to glory, brought to God the Father. So angels, saints, stars, leaves, buds, flowers, that they're all there. And then, you know, maybe you spend $80,000 on a renovation, not badly, but well, to really increase the sign value of the nature of the liturgy itself. And and Dennis, you are uh, at a new role at Benedictine mm-hmm. College, the director of the Center for Beauty and Culture. Can you tell me a little bit about well, what you're doing there and where where do you see the the center leading in the next couple of years? Well, first, let's say Benedictine College, small liberal arts college in northeastern Kansas, and many people haven't heard of it. But it's the reputation is growing. It's having record enrollment, uh, looks like, again, this fall, despite the pandemic. Intensely Catholic, without being puritanical, without being uptight. Students are great. Without sport- being cheesy. Without being cheesy, right? They're, I mean, there's sports teams here, engineering, architecture, nursing, ed- education, uh, and then these great departments of theology and um, philosophy. And so it's a, it's a Catholic place that's really well-balanced. And one of the things that the president, Stephen Minnis, has been doing is increasing the intellectual vibrancy of the place by starting these things called centers. They started one for the Center for um, Constitutional Liberty because they thought people were forgetting what the Constitution was about. So then they asked me to start something called the Center for Beauty and Culture, specifically knowing that culture is how the faith is handed on from one generation to the next, and that beauty is that about the truth, which is attractive. So we have to form a Catholic culture again. People won't want it unless it's delightful. Beauty makes it delightful. So I say beauty is to truth as delicious is to food, right? If you say, well, people need to be nutritious, get nutritious food, but if it's not delicious, they're not going to come get it. So the idea is that I'm primarily a faculty member, but then also continuing podcasts, the liturgy guys, giving talks, writing articles, bringing in speakers, doing some speaking myself on campus, and uh, trying to bring... Uh, ideas as far as they can go, both within our campus and then outside the campus to transform culture in America. That's the task I've been given, which is kind of scary. But transforming culture in America is what the whole movement's called. That is a noble, a noble cause. And if you want to take a course from Dr. Dennis McNamara, you can go to liturgy.online. There are a number of course offerings, not just on church architecture, but you do a course on the church's documents on music, mm-hmm. active participation. One on uh, beauty. One on beauty. Aesthetics. And hopefully uh, some more to come. So, Dennis, thank you for your time. Thank you, Jesse. God bless.